welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. This bonus episode is from the 12-part Genetics Shambles video series, which you can catch live every fortnight at 8.30pm from the 1st of July on the Cosmic Shambles Network. It's a wide-ranging series of conversations and discussions about the past, present and future of genetics with some of the world leaders in the field. It's hosted by Robin Ince in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. You can watch new live stream episodes first at cosmicshambles.com slash geneticsshambles or youtube.com slash cosmicshambles or just catch up here with a podcast edition one week later on Genetics Unzipped. Enjoy! It's amazing that explaining life's immense diversity All comes down to some genetics and some biochemistry And life on Earth is just one family And what's true for you is true for all biology Hello, welcome to Genetic Shambles, our fortnightly show where we speak to geneticists about all manner of different things. We've obviously spoken quite a few times about uh, COVID and we've talked about Neanderthal genes. And today we're talking uh, specifically to uh, one of, uh, well, well, someone who introduced me to uh, Dublin's wonderful dead zoo. We may well talk about the dead zoo and how genetics may have changed the way that taxidermists uh, actually now stuffed a kangaroo that they'd received. There may be many different things we talk about in terms of uh, the relationship between taxidermy and, and genes today, but that might not come up either. Uh, so thanks very much. This is the, this is kind of the penultimate one, but it's not. In, in one way, it is. Uh, next week, we're joined uh, for the final with a conversation with uh, Steve Jones, uh, who, as anyone who knows Steve Jones will know, is one of the top five experts on snails, but is also one of the most wonderful writers uh, uh, about genetics and also about Charles Darwin and about many other things as well. And then we'll also be having a little bit of a genetic shambles on the 12th of December during our 24-hour uh, science show, which you can find out more about that on Cosmic Shambles com. we're basically doing a live 24-hour show it would have been the kind of thing that we dot around theatres uh, but instead we just can do it in one fell uh, possibly extremely destructive for me physically uh, swoop. So uh, a few things about Genetic Shambles. First of all, thanks to Genetic Society and Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath, who are the reason that we are making Genetic Shambles. Uh, and uh, also, if you have any questions tonight, you can just pop them into the live chat uh, or go to Cosmic Chat Shambles, uh, on, which is on Twitter. And, uh, and Trent, our producer, will make sure that I see those questions. So if you've got any live questions at all, we will be dealing with those. Um, and uh, that's pretty much all you need to know. So let me tell you about Ethan McLeisett, who I think I first met um doing uh, a, a gig in uh, in dublin in, uh, in in trinity and uh i can't remember if she was the reason that i was able to get into their fantastic natural history museum, museum which is not the dead zoo the trinity natural history museum is another wonderful thing she's a professor in molecular evolution uh in the molecular evolution laboratory of the smurfer mm -hmm. institute of genetics at the university of dublin trinity college and uh, was also uh delivered the 2018 christmas lectures uh with uh with uh, alice roberts as well which was brilliant um and so we're just gonna uh, hello Aoife how are you I'm very well thanks Robin thanks for the lovely introduction I remember I was, meeting you very well it, it was remember, you did introduce me to the dead zoo didn't I you it was that but I remember so you were over you were did an event in the science gallery in Dublin and um I was lucky enough to be invited along to the dinner afterwards with you 
<laughs> I think you invited me onto Monkey Cage shortly after that, so that was fun. Yeah, I think you. I think that was in Chel- Cheltenham Science Festival. I think was the, the first. Yeah, one. but I, I that was baptism uh, of fire. <laughs> was like, was was, it, I, yeah, it's amazing how how scared kind of people feel about the. It's quite a relaxed chat, but people always presume that Brian's going to some somehow suddenly go into theoretical physics and uh, destroy the fabric of space time around us. So let's talk about first of all um, your career. Now I remember speaking to you a while ago, and you saying that. You were, it wasn't as if you were into biology and uh, ideas of evolution from an early age. There was kind of almost a Damascene moment that you had a great teacher and suddenly it sounds to me like everything just clicked and you went, this is a fabulous idea. No, I had. Yeah. So I don't remember being that into science when I was um, young. I mean, so uh, when I say like, you know, young teen or, or in primary school, that kind of thing, I generally liked everything. I liked school, you know, but um, yeah, I had this fabulous, fabulous teacher and was quite unusual because um, he had a PhD, which is a bit unusual for a school teacher. And he just went, he always went a little bit beyond. And I can distinctly remember when he did genetics with us. And um, one of the things he did was, so I described the way he used to teach as being actually very like what you need to do when you're really doing science for real. So the misconception about what happens when you're doing science is that there's this stuff you have to learn and when you know it all, then you are coronated as a scientist. But instead it's a process, of course, you know, it's it's figuring things out, it's noticing stuff. And he, is, he managed to somehow replicate that in the classroom. And what, the example that I remember really distinctly was when he was doing genetics. So he told us, about, you know, you've got the four bases and they're re- represented by the letters ACTG. And he was talking about, you know, there's a gene. And um, every time he was mentioning a gene, he would always just do ATG and then do a squiggle. But he never said, he never pointed out the fact that he was writing ATG and not just any other three-letter combinations of that four-letter alphabet. He just always did it. And I remember um, just noticing that and going, you know, he always starts with ATG. I wonder why does he always start with ATG? And it was later on then that I learned, um, actually much later on that I learned that this is a special three-letter combination, which is called the start codon, and it's a signal for the start of a gene. And it was just like he just left it there for us to notice and to make our own little discovery in this stupid little way, you know, something that was already known, but we had that little experience of noticing something going, there's a bit of a pattern here. They always start with ATG. And so that got me interested in just the idea of figuring things out you know I, I I discovered that I like looking at things and figuring them out and, and then, then yeah, yeah so and also just the thing I really really liked about genetics was that it's so broad and it applies to so widely to biology and that it's not you know one of the things that um in our course at the time so this isn't I'm not saying this is a, comp- a criticism of biology but in our course at the time most of the biology we did was remembering things like drawing pictures with the correct labels on them. So you draw a picture of the eye and you had to label the lens and the retina and the blah. And that was very boring. But genetics was about understanding things and getting the ideas and getting the principles and then seeing how this applies. And of course, being genetics, it is the language of all life. So once you understand the way genetics works, you can use that understanding and apply it in any place, any part of life. So I just really, really enjoyed that. I, I, I enjoyed the figuring things out bit and I enjoyed how 
genetics was a really special angle, a really powerful angle into figuring things out. So, yeah, it just got me excited. Should we be learning about genetics from an earlier age at school? I just wondered, both perhaps in biology and in, 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 in physics, for instance, you know, most people go through most of their school life in a Newtonian universe. And it might only be by about the third year that they start to move into an Einsteinian universe. And in the same way, even though obviously, you know, genetics is, is can be very, very complex, that complexity just beginning to throw those seeds, just little ideas. Um, do you think that would be a good idea? I think it would be a fabulous idea. I think um, it makes a lot of things make more sense. I don't think it makes them more confusing. I, of course, it's possible to overwhelm somebody with information. So it should be age appropriate in terms of how much understanding you expect on the other side and how much material you expect them to get. But I think it's, it's um, you know, I think it's one of these things that genetics has actually entered into popular culture a lot. People know what the word gene roughly means. Like, I don't think you could ask somebody to define it. That's a bit tricky. But they've heard about genes and they've heard about DNA. And they know that it's something to do with what makes you what you are. So you've got a really good starting point, actually, that it's that there's so much there that's already known in popular culture. And young kids know that, too. I go into schools quite a bit and I give little talks. And I'm um, always really, really impressed at how quickly they catch on to the ideas. So I talk to them about, I usually use um, cats actually as my way of explaining genetics because um, with cats, the coat patterning, so the coloring and that whether it's patchy or solid color and these things, um, it's uh, just a few genes control that. And it's very straightforward genetics in the sense of not being multiple genes interacting and all these kind of things. It's kind of a simple trait. And so I do this game with them where I show them a picture of our cat, which happens to be a fully black cat. And I tell them, I'm going to teach them how to do a magic trick, which is that they can tell me the color of that, uh, the father of that cat without ever seeing that cat. And then I um, show them then the litter mates and the mother. And I explain to them how this is enough information to figure out the color of the father, even though they've never seen the father. And so we step through it and they, they, they figure it out. They always figure it out. And it's, and it's really great. And that is just that to do that, I do this with primary school children and to, to get the answer, they need to understand um, the basics of inheritance so that, you know, you have two copies of each gene and the way you pass them on. They need to understand the idea of dominance, that some genes are dominant over others. And they also need to, because of the way cats are a bit funny, the coat color genes are on the X chromosome. And you know when you get a, a tortoise shell cat that's got orange and black patches? That's when that cat has on one of her X chromosomes the black allele, the black version of the gene, and the other one has the orange. You've got some patches where one is turned on and some patches where the other is turned on. That's what. So there's a lot of things happening here. They need to get the basics of all of these ideas and they figure out that the dad is orange and um, it's brilliant and it works. And it's, I think it's something that definitely could be introduced earlier and it can be fun to do it because then you start seeing it around you. I, another time I um, went into a primary school and I got them to extract DNA. So you can do it with households kind of quite easy to obtain chemicals, right? So you need um, pure, well, quite pure alcohol, 
which you can get in the pharmacist, you know, so for, for um, cleaning wounds. So you can get the surgical spirits, essentially. And then you just need dish soap and some salt. So that's what you need to be able to extract DNA. And you can get DNA spooling out onto a little um, wooden um, toothpick or something like that or a cocktail stick. And I did it with strawberries because there's lots of DNA in strawberries. It's easy to get them out, the DNA out because they're, they're quite mushy. But then you start saying, do you want to extract DNA from something else? They all go home and they start trying to extract DNA from stuff in their kitchen or whatever. And I think, yeah, I think you can introduce the ideas. I think because it, and um, I think it's fun. I think they enjoy it. And I think um, it would probably make a lot of biology make more sense when you think about it from this point of view. But I would also add evolution because understanding genetics and evolution goes hand in glove. And um, then it makes biology make a lot more sense. See, do you know yet why uh, blue-eyed cats always have bad teeth? Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but it was an observation of Darwin's. And of course, Charles Darwin, that was before he knew about genes. But that was one of my favorite things of his observations. He had something about bald, bald dogs. I can't remember what that's linked to. And he said blue-eyed cats always seem to have bad teeth as well. I love that. Again, that joy of observation which must yeah. be so much part of, as you were saying, that observation of that ATG, that immediately means that you kind of, you definitely found the right path to take, didn't you, if you were noticing those things? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it must have been. I thought you were about to tell me a joke there. I didn't know the blue-eyed cats and the bad teeth, so I don't know the answer to that one. I thought it was set up for a punchline. Oh, no, I, I'll always, I'll, I'll do the traditional touching the glasses in the old star clubs there. Those blue-eyed cats. That, um, but I, I do think that bit of being able to observe it in real life. I remember uh, the comedian Stuart Lee once saying Stuart was um, adopted, and he, when he went round to his first girlfriend's house, he suddenly was struck by the fact that all of the family looked quite similar. Mm -hmm. And it's something that he hadn't really thought about from his own. And, and I know there's a there's a scientist who, who I won't name, they're long dead, but a, a scientist who one day had to explain to uh, a, a girl who did not know that he was actually her father. He yeah. thought, I need to, to broker this. And they were sat on the beach with their uh, just bare, bare feet. And uh, he said, isn't it funny how similar our feet look? And I think, you know, all of those little things those those details which mean that this is not just laboratory observation or this is as you said you can go into your kitchen or you can look across to someone else and you can look at the similarities of people on a railway carriage and start to think Do you know what that person looks not that dissimilar to that person so i'm presuming there's a high possibility we can go back the family tree and before long they entwine all of those things to me seem to be give part of the wonder of our now understanding of how that inheritance works yeah yeah, and then you take that idea and you apply it to animals that you see in the zoo or in the dead zoo. And, um, you know, you can, that, that same principle applies. So, yeah, you can take these ordinary everyday observations, which is children look a bit like their parents. And um, then you, you don't realize yet, you know, you can step through these ordinary everyday observations and get to something quite profound, which is maybe, you know, your eyes opening on understanding a bit of evolutionary relationships and the relationships of all the various life on Earth. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's incredibly powerful. And I think it's very accessible. And I think it's probably a bit more accessible than Einsteinian physics, which is quite difficult. <laughs> At least I find it difficult. But, um, you know, it's, I think it's something that you can have all these everyday examples and, um, 
yeah, you can do some lots of fun stuff with it. You're right about Einsteinian physics. I've spent the day writing a chapter about time in the book that I'm doing at the moment. And at the end of the day, I went, I've just realised I haven't really understood anything I've typed out there. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but this is, you, I mean, you've done a lot of uh, public engagement. And, and, you know, some of these stuff, which is very easy for anyone watching this, if you want to see afterwards, a lot of the stuff that you did, for instance, at the Electric Picnic, um, where you are able to, and, and I wonder, finding those stories, those stories which sometimes almost appear to be a shaggy dog story, but by the end of it, we find out the genes that are needed for that particular shagginess, you know, I mean, that that's... When do you, you know, there must be certain stories that you can just see almost imprinting themselves on people as you tell them those stories. So I um, I don't know that I'm good at guessing what other people like. So what I do is I talk about things that I like. So my um, strategy to picking things to talk about, if I do Electric Picnic or when I've done shows with you, um, I describe it as, I think, over the previous year, and I look for the things that made me go, ah. <laughs> so I was like, that made me go, ah, that's interesting. And um, so it's something that I find a little bit curious, and I, I, I dig around in it. And um, I think that would be fun to tell that about that, um, to talk about that. And um, usually if it made me go, ah, it's because it is a, so it's often a little bit away from what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I stumbled upon it, and I went, that's weird. How could that be? And I, I um, look at it and I meander around. And so then the way I talk about it sometimes then when I'm talking to the public it kind of describes those meanderings as well in the sense that I'm kind of saying, uh, you know, it could have been this, it could have been that, but it turns out it's the other. And um, that's, you know, so I, that's the way that I find things when I decide I want to share a little bit of science I find that the things that I find that to me I find really uh, interesting and extraordinary. I just hope that it'll work for other people too. <laughs> what What have been the most recent ones? Where I mean, especially in this situation at the moment, where quite often we've not been able to sometimes mm. communicate these ideas and have those chances as live events. There must be some that you think, oh, I just want to share this with as many people as possible. <laughs> Oh, you're putting me on the spot here now. Um, I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you later. I'll think. I'll see if something comes into my head. I'm trying to think if I. Uh, I don't know if I had something really, really recently about uh, that. It was uh, the things that made me go. Ah, uh, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You're putting me on the spot, and I can't think of something well, now. <laughs> what What do you think in in terms of people who are interested but not scientists what do what are the things they you you find you're, you're most often asked in terms of their hankering to to understand the implications um so you mean understanding in just understanding um bits of science in general is that generally the implications of, of of what we understand and and you know because it is such a rapidly moving um discipline at the moment and you know yeah. it is the kind of thing that occasionally will make the newspapers and very often when it does i know that you'll probably be sitting there going well they've only copied out the first two lines of that particular paper then yeah yeah <laughs> or they've only read the press release um i think the thing that people okay so in terms of understanding implications i think um the thing that people are most interested in is, tends to be around um, gene therapies and editing, and you know, of course, the Nobel Prize um, in I think it was, it was I can't remember it was in chemistry this year went to um, Doudna and Charpentier for their discovery of um, a mechanism for gene editing, 
And that's one that did capture the public imagination very quickly, I think, the idea that, you know, you can change genes and you can do it in this really, really targeted way. I think that's something that's very interesting for people to understand. But I also um, really fall for the, like, I'm really interested in just the intrinsic value of knowledge um, without it having automatic implications for other things or maybe not necessarily having implications for people in their lives, but just the pleasure of understanding things. And um, I find in times when I've given talks, I've given talks about things as um, apparently obscure as just, you know, the, the well, not obscure, but not necessarily um, going to have extraordinary implications for people just in terms of something like how uh, an eye begins to develop and how the gene that triggers the development of an eye in us is essentially the same gene as does it in mice and is essentially the same gene as does it in octopus, um, an extremely distantly related animal. And basically everywhere you find an eye, it's the same gene. So it's descended from uh, our common ancestor. So that doesn't necessarily have immediate implications for people, except perhaps um, that the, the big implication, which is it's, it's kind of presenting this evolutionary relationship and the connectedness of all life presenting it in a, in a very for me a very clear and stark way which I find um kind of it's 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 humbling and at the same time it's enriching you know because I think you know it's humbling to see this connection between all life on the planet but somehow it's there's something that you feel kind of bigger afterwards for having understood it, right? So it's two things happening at the same time. Like you've understood this thing and you've discovered this thing. So you feel this swell of pride and the knowledge and the understanding, even if you've just understood that, you know, something that about us, which is, you know, as complex as the eye has these beginnings that are shared across all life. So yeah, these are the the kind of things, that's the kind of way I approach things. I, 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 I enjoy the I enjoy the knowledge. I enjoy the figuring out, and I I try to share that. Well, that was I, I remember you uh, once watching a talk where you talked about how far into this discipline you've gone before you then suddenly had that revelatory moment of going yeah. this incredible connective tissue. You know, when when you see what Paul Nurse and his team did, and the fact that you know yeast yeast can't sit as far as we know in whatever it's contained in at the time and think wow what incredible implications that not yeah. merely the code that i have is all, but as you said we can and that that i think is very beautiful the fact that you can be perhaps observing something so close up that it's not yeah. when you're in the laboratory it's not when you're doing the research it's when you're just gazing out of the window it's when you're going for a walk you suddenly think oh this connection yeah isn't every living thing that we can observe yeah yeah, no, so when I had um, the example you're reminding me there of is literally when I just, it occurred to me um, in a kind of very, uh, it occurred to me very suddenly in a certain a certain way, the fact that DNA connects, the DNA connection of all life to each other is not a metaphor. And um, that I, I realized, well, actually, no, it's a physical connection. The DNA has touched the DNA of the previous generation, which has touched the DNA of the previous generation and so on and so on forever, as long as there is uh, life. And um, that's a very, in a certain way, mundane observation. And you could tell that to somebody on the first day of their 
genetics or biology. And possibly I was told that on the first day, but it didn't sink in or something. It didn't mean the same thing until I came back to it again later. And, and that happened because I was talking about genetics to somebody else. And I was, um, you know, to somebody who wasn't a geneticist and I was explaining things and it just dawned on me as I was saying this, I was kind of rattling something off about, oh, you know, DNA connects us all. And, but then I was like, oh, but oh my God, it really does. And it was kind of funny. I was you know, already a professional geneticist and I just hadn't thought about it that precise way that this is more than a metaphor. It's like we, so I imagined it like a big long chain of people holding hands. So you're not holding hands with everybody in the line. But there's an unbroken chain. So you are you are linked to the person at the beginning of the line, even if you're not directly holding their hand. And um, that when it when it dawned on me like that, I, it was suddenly, you know, it was it was like some pe- sometimes people describe suddenly understanding infinity or something like that. And so it was a bit like that for me. I was like suddenly seeing that this is a really big, long, unbroken chain, by definition, an unbroken chain, because when the chain breaks, the DNA doesn't get passed on. And that's a that's a dead end in terms of evolution. So anybody who is alive today, by definition, has ancestors in every previous generation. And so there is an unbroken chain. And um, yeah, that was <laughs> kind of a silly and a profound moment at the same time. Yeah, because when you say mundane, I think it is so far from mundane. And when you think of those hands, uh, also, if you think that each time you then get a species divide. So as you go back those chains, and as as we've talked about this many times before as well, the fact that it's no longer a tree of life. It's become something far more complicated in what you see. We've had loads of, 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 of questions uh, coming in. And I'm going to take the first one uh, from Ad- Adam Deeks wants to know, what was the first thing to have? DNA did something not alive I'm I'm saying it like that by the way to show his inverted commas not alive mutating something alive triggering the beginning of evolution okay so the first um part of the answer there is that what we believe so of course we can't go back in time but we have um let's say very good inferences that we're reasonably confident in and we believe that the first living thing didn't use DNA as its genetic material but used a chemical relative which is RNA very very similar so DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid and um, RNA is just the ribonucleic acid so you take the deoxy off so it's a slightly more unstable molecule um, but um, it um, the reason it's considered to probably be the first um, the genetic material of the first living thing is because it both carries information and can have and can be active so it can do stuff as well and kind of enzymatic it can control uh, processes in the cell whereas dna can only carry the information so what happens in our cells now we've got dna carrying the information and it gets copied into an rna message to do the stuff and go ahead in the cell so um so that's the first thing so it probably was rna but then to get to translate your question into that that you know what how did it happen so we don't 100% know for sure, but there are some very good ideas um, to do with um, that there were these, so the RNA chemical, a bit like DNA, um, can get copied. And um, that, so this copying could happen. And then it was probably originally in something not inside a cell. So this is just a molecule and it's a chemical reaction. We're getting more of this molecule. And then at some point they start getting enclosed in a space so one idea 
um, that I've heard at least Nick Lane from UCL talk about is the idea there might have been something like you can imagine even little dimples in a rock um, that it would be a little enclosed space rather than the wide open ocean kind of thing. So you've got these enclosed spaces, it starts going like that, and eventually this enclosed space becoming a little cellular membrane, and then you start having things that look more like cells and you, things that look a bit more like um, biological life as we think of it now. But um, the idea is then, you know, this is, this is the idea, this idea makes sense to me in a in a superficial sense, at least like that, it's not what I'm um, working on every day, but um, that you have this molecule that originated before you would necessarily call it life. And um, it possibly happened multiple times without it becoming a stable and successful lineage that led to the life we're talking about today. Thank you. The uh, Lots more questions. We've got one from uh, Jonathan here. Uh, Jonathan wants to know, did humans evolve to be susceptible to viruses so we could get genetic upgrades? <laughs> so that's a funny question. Um, I wonder how Jonathan means that. Does he mean it as a joke or as a totally serious question? But I'll answer it like a totally serious question. So, um, you know, so one thing, yeah, so of course viruses are big in the news at the moment, but um, there are other kinds of viruses that do... Um, integrate themselves into our genome so when you get when you get infected um the virus doesn't just hang around in the cell but it actually integrates its genetic material into the genome of the host that would be us if we're the ones infected and when this happens there's a certain chance that um it the the cell that gets infected is actually a progenitor of a, a reproductive cell so then that um virus DNA can get passed on and this has happened sufficiently that 8% of the human genome is viral in origin and um, there are multiple very interesting cases where this viral DNA that was lying around the genome that eventually stops acting like viral DNA it just is lying there but it got recycled and became really important and interesting genes from a human point of view or from a mammalian point of view. So actually, um, it turns out that sometimes getting a viral infection in an evolutionary sense has been a kind of genetic upgrade because it's given the raw material, it's left some raw material there that has been recycled and repurposed into other um, other functions. But I wouldn't say that we have evolved in, or in order for that to happen. It's just that it has happened and it has had some, you know, ultimately in the long run, some uh, useful effects, you might say. But um, uh, we didn't evolve in we didn't evolve to get uh, viral infections. Viruses more likely um, involved to be able to be good at infecting us, and we're fighting back all the time in terms of our immune system. Um, if you look at uh, the mammalian immune system, has tons and tons of genes. It's a complex immune system. And there's a lot of genes involved in the immune system. And they are some of the fastest evolving genes in the human genome and in other mammals as well. And that's because of what's sometimes called an arms race with the, the, the various pathogens, viruses included, that, um, you know, so the, our immune system is evolving rapidly and the viruses are also evolving rapidly. And it's sometimes, and so it's, it's that the, the immune system is 
Uh, any changes in the immune system genes tend to be advantageous because they allow recognition of diverse infections or pathogens. Um, but then what happens on the other side is the virus, um, any changes that happen in the viruses that mean it's not recognized by the immune system are advantageous. So we're both constantly running um, and it's sometimes described as red queen evolution after the red queen in Alice through the looking glass um, because she says that it takes all the running you can do to stay in the same place. So in one way things stay in the same place. If you take one level of distance, the immune system still recognizes the virus or whichever pathogen it is. But if you look um, at a different level of resolution, it's totally changed because, or significantly changed because the sequence, the DNA sequence on both sides will have changed a lot. But, um, but so that's, uh, you know, so we didn't evolve in order to, we haven't evolved uh, in order to be infected by uh, viruses, but there have been interesting evolutionary consequences of that. That is, that's, there's a certain kind of somewhere dystopian stroke utopian science fiction novel, isn't there, about <laughs> the, the creature that didn't survive because it could never be infected. It's kind <laughs> of it feels very counterinstinctual. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Jonathan, I hope that that uh, explained that. I, I it certainly helped me a great deal. Brigger would like to know. Uh, recently, uh, read someone described mammoths as a genetic disaster, and that's why they went extinct. Are you able to talk about this, please? What makes something a genetic disaster? I didn't hear that. Poor mammoths. Um, I don't know if that. I I think. Okay, so I'm not an expert on mammoths, so I apologise. Then uh, I'll, I'll say something. Um, I'll say I won't I won't talk too much about mammoths in case I get it wrong. But what I have heard is that mammoths essentially were victims of climate change. You know, after the ice age ended and they were adapted to cold weather and it got too hot for them to and they they didn't they didn't manage to the, the weather, the climate changed faster than they could, which I think is a lesson for modern times as well, because this is a significant risk at the moment um, that uh you know, the climate is changing faster than adaptation of various animals might be able to keep up with. But I didn't hear them called a genetic disaster. If you wanted to ask me, okay, so I changed the question. If you wanted to ask me, what do I think is the biggest genetic disaster? I would say the platypus, because the platypus seems to be weird in every way that it's possibly possible to be weird. So not only is it a really strange looking animal that, you know, had had the Victorian um, naturalists thinking was a hoax, but it's got such a strange genome. And um, even though it's a mammal, it has its sex chromosomes are not at all like the mammalian sex chromosomes. They're a bit more like bird sex chromosomes. And um, instead of just being like an X and a Y pair or an X and an X pair, they have a chain of sex chromosomes that the end of one matches up with the tip of the other and the other end of that matches up with another one. And it's it's all really weird. So platypus is, is I think, the most genetically and in every other way weird thing I would come up with. But it's not a disaster, is it? Because it's still going. That's it's the thing, going. isn't it? That's the it's still going. You, know, you, be, you become a genetic disaster. If, if you've actually managed to survive for a while, it seems that you're more likely to become a genetic disaster than start Maybe. off. Um, uh, there, there was more platypus stuff in the news the other week, wasn't there? The, the platypus oh. research is, is still going on. Um, we've had loads of questions in suddenly. We often get that. In the last 10 minutes, they, then they all arrive. This is from Suzanne Jones. Suzanne, would, you, would she like to know, what is the most exciting thing for you that is currently happening oh. in genetics? Oh. Um, oh, my goodness. There's so many things. Um, I think I'm really interested in um, a lot of the ancient DNA work. I find that really exciting. So, and um, one of the things that 
makes it one, one of the aspects of it that's really interesting is you know so what we've done and uh, what we've been able to do for a while is you're looking at modern examples and you infer the past but then when we were able to get ancient dna it was literally stepping back in time and it's getting the dna of one of these individuals who lived a long time ago and then that's been really 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 extraordinary and not only individuals then as the technology in terms of extracting dna from really um what seemed like very degraded samples but being able to get the dna out of them has meant that now we've got lots and lots of data from ancient uh samples and really old samples and it's it's quite extraordinary it's, it really is stepping back in time and that's that's fun and that's really i find that really exciting and um and just also, i mean i've so many different things um i think the work in understanding um I'm always fascinated with understanding the process of development. And I think that's something that we're understanding better and better all the time. So that process of how is it you can start with a single cell that doesn't apparently have an up and a down, even though it might have a little bit and you get, you know, a, a structure like us and it reliably happens every time and the arms and legs come out in the right place and all of these kind of things. And that's extraordinary. And it's, um, it seems impossibly complicated and yet it works every time and, you know, I find that really exciting as well, like as we're understanding more and more about that. Uh, thank you. W William uh, would like to know, uh, can CRISPR help with COVID? Oh, no, unfortunately. I mean, except, I mean, okay, CRISPR couldn't help with, okay, I'll, I'll rephrase. You wouldn't CRISPR humans. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't change humans in order to try and, um, uh, like, make you resistant to COVID. But actually, you might use CRISPR in making a vaccine. That could be possible because one thing they might do is um, a, a potential strategy could is um, a vaccine strategy is to have an attenuated version of the virus. So like a, a version of the virus, but one that doesn't really make you sick so that it educates your immune system without the illness. And um, that is somewhere that maybe CRISPR could come in so that you could take the actual um, SARS-CoV-2 and modify it sufficiently that it still elicits the immune response without making you sick. So it could come in that angle. So I, I said no too quickly initially. Uh, this one is, is someone who wants to uh, program their own creature and grow them. Uh, so they want to know when that technology, when when will there be or how long until a Gene++ compiler comes out and I can program my own creatures? <laughs> well, you possibly could do it already, actually. Um, there, there is such a thing as there are people who do DIY biology, like I think DIY bio. And, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff you could kind of do at home in your garage. Um, you do need, if you want to... Um, do any kind of changes, you know, it's called genetic engineering or genetic modification. You do need a, a license for that, um, but you can get it. I know I know a guy who does, um, he's, he's uh, really big into doing the DIY bio and has all this stuff set up at home and, and even um, made like, you know, um, so 3D printing um, files, whatever you call those template files so that to print the various components. Like, so you want a centrifuge, so you just he he um, designed a little adapter for an ordinary household drill that you put on where the drill bit would be, and it um, spins and makes it into a centrifuge. And um, so you know he's got all these different things. And so yeah, there's things you could do at home, but you're not going to get you know you're not going to get a, like a, a dinosaur. You might get a, 
a glow-in-the-dark yeast cell or something. <laughs> but that's fun if you get to do it, I suppose. So it's quite close to that moment where people bought um, those, uh, what were they called? Not seahorses. Uh, the, yeah, um, the, those little bits of shrimp that in the, in yeah, the adverts. Yeah. In the, what were they? The sea monkey, weren't they? Sea monkeys, that's it, yeah. yeah. That was... It's not... It's not um, it's not completely inconceivable to me that there could be something a bit like a chemistry kit that could be, you know, uh, a little genetics kit. It's not inconceivable um, that there could be some little things there that you could do, maybe. The um, This is uh, Malcolm would like to know. Um, now, this is I, I know it's a really tough question and you may well want it, but, but it is uh, that one. Do you think we'll ever be able to determine a percentage of environment versus genetics when it comes okay. to behaviour? And I think that whole thing, I, I read Robert Plowman's blueprint quite uh, recently and, and, you know, trying to understand those things and trying to, I suppose, ever actually have the situation where you are uh, given the, uh, the the legal rights yeah. to, to create. Yeah, um, so... Okay, so I'll I'll first caveat is I don't work on that on the genetics of behavior, so I'll just give myself a little out there as well. But I mean, one of the things um, that is tricky to um, I think it's a tricky concept in terms of when you talk about genes versus environment on in any genetic trait, is that you're always talking about the variation in that trait rather than the trait itself, right? So let's just say that um, okay, I'll give kind of a stupid example of you know. What's the if you were talking about what's the genetic component of um, how many legs you have you know the, you know something like that um, it, you would if you look at it from the point of view this point of view of uh, uh, that we normally talk about in behavior you'd say there's no the, you wouldn't talk about a genetic component necessarily at all because there isn't really variation everybody has two legs and so um, so what so you're only talking about that bit that varies between people so there's things that are really really constant between people and those are let's say highly genetic but we don't start talking about um this component so that's the first bit and that gets tricky to understand it's just that we're so we are talking about the 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 the, the little variations usually and so but what happens is um the amount that is genetic is down to your genes versus down to the environment um can then vary depending on what happens in the environment as well. So um, you can get less variation, less environmental variation, but perhaps like could be things like and uh, the schools being more standard and things like that, which means that all that's left is the genetic variation. And then it would look like it was a more genetic trait than if the very, the environment was itself more, more uh, varied and it could allow more of that variation to come about. So that's a it's it's a tricky topic, but basically the answer somewhat depends, um, and I think it's always going to slightly depend. And even even if it didn't somewhat depend, I think it's really really difficult because behavior is one of those things that's notoriously difficult to quantify in a way that's amenable to scientific analysis as well. You know, so it's. It's not like you can just count it in the same way. You know, you can count things and that makes them easy. If you have three and I have four, I can say, you know, there's a difference I can measure. But it's very hard to measure differences in behavior. I think there's certain things you can are the simple ones, right? So those are probably the ones 
people analyze first but it's tricky it's a hard question and i don't know if i answered it necessarily very well but <laughs> well i don't, I don't think as you said it's it's not a simple uh then we'll get there and this is what we discovered as you said it's it's that great thing i think almost every time that we've done any shows where we've talked about that it's always ended by saying it's become more complex the blurred yeah. area in between has become blurrier and bigger um, yeah, yeah. The, the information which does appear to be uh to some extent more rigid um final question to, 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 this is a nice simple one because uh it's definition how do i pronounce my name no <laughs> uh the uh turtle power uh would like to know can you explain the difference between a molecular marker and a genetic marker okay. i was reading about this the other day and it seems to be similar to be uh, how a square is also a rectangle but a rectangle isn't also a square okay yes it's probably that um i don't know i think it might depend on the context because um, they could be totally interchangeable. Yeah, like you say, a square and a rectangle. Um, so uh, a molecular marker, um, okay, so essentially a marker is just something you can measure. Like that's the what a marker is. So it's anything that's amenable to being measured. And um, a molecular marker is usually going to be, um, it could be genetic in terms of it being a DNA marker, or it could be something produced in the cell perhaps. But a genetic marker might be um, a trait that you're looking at, which could be a bit more um, than a molecular marker. But I'm not quite sure, actually, what distinction is being made there. It's not. It might depend on the context it was written about. But um, yeah, so but it, they, they are almost the same thing. Um, and I, I might need to see the context to be sure what they mean, actually, in terms of uh, what distinction was being made there. Well, that will uh, we we will leave it there and say that uh, you uh, there's loads of stuff that people can catch up with with in, in terms of, as I said all the electric picnic stuff there uh, the Christmas lectures are still uh, definitely worth returning to I mean that that was that must have been so much fun and it must have been very interesting to see again in terms of having a, a large audience which were you know a lot of children watching it and the things you must have found there were certain things that arrived in your mailbox where you're like going oh well this one is really uh, kind of you know sometimes even kicked up a stink or sometimes just kicked up fascination yeah oh no it was so so much fun i loved doing that and it was great doing it with alice roberts because we just got along so well when we were doing it as well i think we really had a laugh and the audience it was just the best audience ever right because they're you know it's it's a whole group of people who've chosen to be there and they're there because they're really enthusiastic and they're practically on the edge of their seats listening to you which is really nice right it's nice to talk to a group of people who really want to hear you so it was so much fun and coming up you know finding examples to talk about there and the Christmas lectures of course are really big into visuals and what they call demos you know things that you can you can wheel in and mess around with and make pop and do all these kind of things so getting creative about that in a way that I hadn't done before because I don't normally work with props you know so um that so was fun it was really really good fun it was um yeah definitely a wonderful experience I'm delighted I got to do that they should definitely at some point show that that room that Victorian room where everyone is held, all the people who are doing demos. So you've kind of you've, you've got you've got a man with a bunch of crows, and you've got three <laughs> people dressed up as chimpanzees who are on stilts, and you've got a great big vat of liquid nitrogen, and it is it's it's a proper circus sideshow of science, isn't it? When you actually see see behind the scenes. In one of the lectures, we had dogs coming in because we were talking about the all of this big genetic variation within this one 
species. And in that, that room had a sign, you know, like, you know, don't open the doors, don't let the dogs out. <laughs> there was a pile of dogs in there, of course, from something like a Great Dane down to, we, I think the smallest one was a little Chihuahua that I carried onto the stage and it was trembling. <laughs> so the poor little thing, its um, owner was just, just a few steps behind me. But um, yeah, no, that was, it was, it's funny. It's, a, it's the whole thing. And we brought in a big horse um and a cow and you know all kinds of things um yeah the the lift was well um used in that place um to get all these things in all those weird animals it was fun i remember mark Dovnik perhaps not having fully checked the uh the height of the door uh when he rode in on his penny farthing um <laughs> thank you very much everyone for for watching and uh all the previous episodes are online uh you, uh, you can go to genetics unzipped uh you find them on cosmic shambles uh thank you very much to the genetics society the milner center for evolution at the university of bath as i said we have uh one more full uh genetic shambles in two weeks time with uh Steve Jones, uh, author, one of my favourite books, actually, one of my favourite science books, Almost Like a Whale, which changed the perspective of so many things uh, for me as uh, as a non-scientist. And I, I think also scientists, well, he's, he's, uh, there will be many, many stories on that. Um, and also, uh, I should mention, Helen Chersky and I will be doing our Sunday Science Q&A this Sunday live. And uh, Helen, the reason I mention that is because Helen is one of the people doing um, this year's uh, Christmas lectures, which should be very exciting as well. Thanks very much to producer Trent Burton. Enjoy the rest of your week and bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.